Are you ready to break free from stress, burnout, and overwhelm? Hey, I'm Kelly Villarreal, and this is Connect to Calm. I'm a yoga and mindfulness teacher on a mission to help people just like you overcome burnout and chronic stress so that you can thrive. Join me each week for inspiring conversations full of practical tips and strategies to help you show up in your life with balance and equanimity. Ready to connect to Calm? Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Connect to Calm podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Villarreal. I'm really excited to be back here with you for today's episode. But before we dive in, I want to remind you that your ratings, your reviews, your shares on social media have been so important in helping this podcast grow and gain awareness. And I'm deeply appreciative. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could take a moment to just leave a quick rating or a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast. I also wanted to let you know coming into 2024 that there are a couple of really exciting opportunities to join me on a retreat. In March of 2024, if you are local to the Pacific Northwest, I will be leading a weekend retreat with a dear friend of mine on Whidbey Island. And next November, you can join me in Costa Rica for a seven-day yoga and meditation retreat. You can find out about both of those on my website, kellyvyoga.com. A friend of mine, Dorcas Nung, who is here to talk with us about the polyvagal theory and yoga. Dorcas is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Washington and California. She's been working with children, families, and birthing people for over two decades. Her interest in the nervous system and its connection to emotions and behaviors began nearly 18 years ago when during postgraduate work at a trauma clinic in Los Angeles, she had the opportunity to collaborate with a pediatric occupational therapist doing combined mental health and occupational therapy sessions with severely abused children. She's continued to expand her interest in working with the whole human by supporting clients to expand feeling states through the entire body, allowing them to develop greater emotional capacity. Hi, Dorcas. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk with you today. Um, I wonder if we could start by having you just tell us a little bit about you and your practice and how you came into this work. Yeah, um, well, I've been doing this work since about 2003 now. So gosh, going into my 20th, 21st year, 21st year. Yeah. And I started out working um, in community mental health with children and adolescents and um a lot of the training I had was in um, working with very young children who are very sensory. So I had the opportunity to learn a lot about um, sensory issues and how the nervous system works. Awesome. Um, what, what kind of things um, today inspire you in the work that you do with children and with families? Yeah, well, I was thinking about that because you sent me that question and I was like, oh my gosh, everything inspires me. Um, the ancient wisdom of the East, you know, yoga philosophy, you know, even working with children, um, it's very much part of my work. Um, you know, like things like, um, you know, bringing effort and ease together and 
when can when can we have a moment in during a challenging time where we can have a little ease so it shows up like that that really inspires me um and my clients inspire me they're so courageous and resilient and they show me that um we are able to grow and evolve over time yeah i love that and there is um i think you and i share a lot of interest in the way that ancient teachings and Eastern philosophy is really, um, in some ways being spoken about through like a more scientific lens today. Um, but there's a mirroring of so many things that have been known for a long time. And now we just have different language for them. Um, but we, you and I share a lot of interest in that, um, which is probably why we're friends. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I appreciate all the conversation that we have about that. I do too. Um, we're here today to talk about polyvagal theory, which is, I'm really excited to dive into. Um, I first heard about polyvagal theory when I took a yin yoga teacher training and my teacher at the time that she was teaching us was doing some training about polyvagal theory. So I got interested in it and um, did a little more learning on my own. I took a short course on polyvagal theory and it had my interest. And as you know, I'm on social media a lot. (laughs) Um, It's part of my work and um, on Instagram and on TikTok, uh, the polyvagal theory is kind of as social media tends to do is like it's oversimplified and it's very popular. So it's, it kind of tends to crop up and is, um, I see a lot of chatter about polyvagal theory. So I'm really interested in talking to you about it through this different lens that you have of, um, of, uh, as a mental health professional and how, how we can maybe apply those understandings to yoga. Um, so what, what I know of, or what I understand of polyvagal theory as that polyvagal theory in a nutshell is focused on the vagus nerve. And before we go really deep on that, just for everyone listening who maybe isn't so familiar with the nervous system, we'll take just a quick rundown because polyvagal theory is focused on this one specific part of the nervous system. So when we're talking about the nervous system, we have the central nervous system that refers to the brain and to the spinal cord. And it's important to understand that all nerves communicate information to the brain via the central nervous system. Our peripheral nervous system then refers to everything else. So those are the nerves of the skin, the organs, muscles, everything, everything else is in that catch-all. Our autonomic nervous system, which is really the focus of polyvagal theory in my understanding, operates often beyond our conscious awareness or control, and that manages everything from our digestion to our respiration and our heart rate and all of the automatic processes that keep us alive or a function of the autonomic nervous system. So... Polyvagal theory, as I understand it, is really focused on the vagus nerve, right? Which is one of our 12 main cranial nerves and the way that it kind of regulates whether we're in what I would call um, like a sympathetic reaction or a parasympathetic state and kind of on the spectrum between between those states of like activated or at ease Mm -hmm. in a nutshell. So can you tell us in broad strokes, Dorcas, what the polyvagal theory is? Yeah, yeah. I just had a question though. Yeah. Um, I I don't I know yoga people listen to your podcast. Um, do we want to talk about like parasympathetic and and sympathetic 
just real quick or just go yeah. Yeah, that's a good um that's a good piece of context to give. Um the the sympathetic nervous system is that activation is when we're in what most of us are very familiar with as like a fight or flight response. Um it's the really the system that our bodies evolved to keep us safe and out of danger and alive. Um and then our parasympathetic responses cover um rest and digest or what my uh, actually my favorite way I've heard it described is the feed and breed response, <laughs> um, where the body's in a more regulated state. And when we're in that more regulated state is, um, we're also kind of in a, in a space where the body's healing and able to rest and repair. So those are kind of important call outs about parasympathetic responses. Yeah. And, um, I think something important about that is, we don't necessarily go into one or the other. It's dynamic. We might be moving towards one or more in one, but not, we're not, it's not like a black and white binary kind of thing. Yeah. It's definitely not a static state. And this is something that I um, talk to people about when I teach on the nervous system too, is that even within the space of one breath, right. And my understanding is that even as there's like a gas exchange in the lungs, that we're moving more in the direction of sympathetic or parasympathetic. So we're always kind of floating between the two, but um, we can have like a macro space where we're, there's like a clear sympathetic response if we're in danger and we need to get out of danger versus what it, what it might be like when we're really at ease and in a space that's more creative and all of those things. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks for that call out. That's it's a good call out to de define those two terms. Um, so I'd love to hear from you about what the polyvagal theory is and what it encompasses. Yeah, so um, just a little bit of background um, with timeline. Um, so Dr. Stephen Porges, he's the person who created or developed polyvagal theory. Um, he first presented. Um, his findings back in the mid nineties. So I think it was 1994, 1995. Um, and what it's, I think it's interesting because um, his main area of clinical interest as a research, what researcher was around um, obstetrics and neonatal, um, the early first days of life for a baby. Um, and he was looking at risk factors for that. And um, in the world that I, I come from, the world that I was trained in, a lot of people talk about birth as the original trauma. You're mm -hmm. I've heard this. <laughs> I, you're, so it's a traumatic experience. So um, he was looking at risk factors around that. Um, but what came out of that was um, this hierarchical three-part um, um, structure that um, we can look at the autonomic nervous system in. Um, and so the highest part of that um, hierarchy would be the ventral vagal. Um, and then it would be, um, and then there's also the dorsal vagal and sympathetic and parasympathetic are in there, but we use these different terms. Um, to what, do the, what do those two terms mean? Ventral vagal and dorsal vagal? Like how would you describe them to someone 
well, yes, a bunch of people listening who've probably never heard these terms. Yes. Um, so um, the ventral vagal is the part of our autonomic nervous system, the way Dr. Porges conceptualizes it. Um, it's the part that is involved with social engagement. And it's the part where um, we are looking to facial expressions um, and feeling someone's emotional response to us as a way to co-regulate us. So if we are in a, an activated state, um, if we come in contact with someone who's supportive and uses a tone that is gentle and kind, then that's gonna um, bring us back to a calmer state sooner than if we were alone. So um, does that make sense about the ventral vagal? Yeah, that does make sense. And then what, the dorsal vagal? Yeah, well, well, one more thing about the ventral vagal. Yeah. Um, he he talks about how it's low. There's like a location. It's from your abdomen up to basically your face, um, and then the dorsal vagal would be the back, lower left side of your body. It's it's um, the part that. Um, is about a freeze response. So there's rest and digest when we think of parasympathetic and sympathetic, right? Parasympathetic being rest and digest. Dorsal vagal is a freeze response. It's a collapse. It's low energy, whereas um, whereas ventral vagal is about more energy. It's about being in a calmer state, but but it's more, there's more energy than in a dorsal vagal where there's collapse. Okay. So dorsal vagal is uh, at a very simple understanding. We could call it like the freeze response. Yes. I, yeah. And I use a lot of words there for you. Yeah. To get response. That's okay. <laughs> um, there, cause there is a lot there and it's really interesting, but just at a, at a very simple level, we could understand it like this freeze response. And it, it sounds to me um, a little bit like when we're stuck in a dorsal vagal state sounds a little bit like a state of almost depression or, or that sort of energy where we're just kind of stuck. Yeah. And in a therapeutic setting, um, we could think of it, we could conceptualize it as like depression or dissociation. Mm -hmm. um, so someone spacing out to go away from whatever they're, what, something traumatic, for instance, or something difficult, we might space out to go away from that thing. And that's, that's a, in his conceptualization, that's a more dorsal response. I got it. Is there a third state that's also covered in polyvagal theory? Or um, are those the main two? Those are the main two. Okay. Yeah that make it different from thinking about just sympathetic and parasympathetic. Got it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a really, it's a little bit of a different way to describe certain aspects of those two states we could say. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> Great. So in my lens as a yoga teacher, when I think about the ways in which yoga works with the nervous system, a couple that stand out to me are, because we have yoga practices, yoga, and I'm talking specifically about asana now, 
um, and maybe not so much breath work or meditation, although we can, we can go in that direction too. But when I think about asana practices on a spectrum, you have things like restorative yoga, which are very, um, great cozy and long held designed with the idea of making the body feel safe and supported. So there can be a release. And then all the way at the other end of the spectrum, you have practices like power yoga or Ashtanga yoga that are very active, very vigorous and, and really dynamic practices. Um, I, I hear some things in there that are like, I've got some things percolating in my mind about what you were just talking about with dorsal and ventral vagal. But when I think about active asana, one way that I understand yoga to work with the nervous system is the principle of progressive overload. Are you familiar with that principle? Um, tell me more. Uh, the, the progressive overload principle for the, those people who might be listening and not sure what that is, the, it comes actually from the weight training world. Um, so we're applying it here in a little bit of a different way, but the progressive overload principle basically says that you have to work beyond capacity for a muscle to grow and you continue to progressively overload. I'm making air quotes, but overload the capacity of a muscle to create its growth. And the way that we might understand it with our nervous systems is that we, when we come into poses and for me, it's always, this is the one I go right to, um, in, in an active type of practice is like chair pose or anything really that starts to challenge you where you can notice as you're holding a pose or it's becoming difficult that there's the tendency to have a stress response start to happen where your muscles are starting to fatigue. And then mentally is the, like, I have to get out of here. How much longer is she going to keep talking? <laughs> Why are we still here? Um, so noticing when that stress response begins to happen and then being reminded often right by the yoga teacher or whomever's in the room to take a breath or to steady, or just to stay through the difficulty. And so in that way, we kind of train our nervous systems to a wider, um, ability to tolerate that discomfort and learn how to respond to stress in, in what is kind of a controlled environment. <laughs> Cause most of us, when we come into a group practice setting are less likely maybe to bolt when there's 20 other people <laughs> in the room, like we're not going to be the one who's like, I've had enough of this and, and leave <laughs> the room in warrior two or when things get difficult. So it's that ability to, um, you know, my teacher, Judith Lassiter, I once heard her kind of encapsulate, um, the practice of asana. When we talk about like, what is asana? She says that asana is the ability to abide in ease. And so even in moments of difficulty, the, to be able to practice abiding in ease is asana. Yeah, I love the way she puts it. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and yeah, it's that like in times of challenge, physical challenge, emotional challenge, how do we find that little bit of ease? It's not taking away the challenge that yeah. we, we want to find that little bit of ease. I think there's also something there too about many of us go through the world and it was true for me for a long period of time. Um, it's only been in maybe the last like 10 years that I've gotten better at this, but even to notice when that stress response is starting to happen, right. Um, prior to really being very dedicated to my yoga practice and, um, going through teacher training and all of those things is like, I would go from zero to 60 without even recognizing that I was on that pathway. Yeah. That it was that I was walking down that road. And it's really, um, the ability to like discern and notice like, oh, I'm starting to react or I'm starting to have this 
increased breathing rate or any number of things like my mental conversation is changing and I'm stressed out. Um, so the ability to even notice and discern those, I think in, in the terms of our widening our window of tolerance is important too. So important because we can't, we don't go from zero to 60, right? From zero to 10 to 20 to 30, you know, all the way to 60. And when we are aware, putting attention on how we're feeling and we notice, oh, I'm at, I'm at 20. Do I want to let this go on? You can pull it back. You can reel it back in and you don't ever have to get to 60. I mean, mm-hmm. we do because we're humans, but you yeah. have, have control over it. Yeah. Or even starting to have like what I imagine that you practice with people too, but even in yoga, we have some tools then to start to work with. It's like noticing that I can take a deep breath and maybe pause here or move around a little bit and see what happens there. There starts to be some tools that we can use when we notice we're at 20 and maybe we want to come back down to 10. Yeah. And I, I use this um, metaphor of indicator lights, like on our cars, like the turn check engine light comes on. Ooh, I better check the engine, you know? And we have those, we have, you know, like my, sh- my breathing is really shallow. I'm like making fists with my hands right now. I can feel my breathing getting ragged. You know, we have those indicator lights. So just paying attention to them. Yeah. And I, there's something too there about noticing how, or how we're often unaware that we're, we're living kind of in our heads. Mm-hmm. and noticing for me, it's been really a valuable practice to notice when I've come out of the experience of being in my body. And when I'm starting to ramp up or spiral down that pathway, I'm usually in my head and not, not paying so much attention to how I feel in my body. Yeah. There's something, there's something there, um, about asana too, and the, the body awareness that we, that we get. Yes, it's, I, I just find asana practice to be so, so valuable um, for all the reasons you're talking about. Yeah. I wanted to highlight to some of the slower practices like yin yoga and restorative that live at the other end of the spectrum from these really active practices and what the value in helping us turn inward is. It is a little bit of what we were just talking about with, um, the practice of developing some interoceptive awareness or the ability to, to feel into what's happening in your body and, and discern, um, safe sensation and, and just kind of wondering about more of the ways that your body responds, even when you're asking yourself to relax, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, and being able to, to look and just sit with those things quietly is, is a different practice, but it was making me think when you were talking about dorsal and ventral vagal. And it, it, this was not on our list of things to talk about today, but it made me think a little bit about Ayurveda Mm -hmm. and the practice of, of kind of cultivating the opposite where I imagine like being stuck in a freeze response Mm -hmm. in that simplified way that we were talking about, but like being stuck in a freeze response that maybe if, if you're in that freeze response, the practice that is valuable is maybe something that's more vigorous or more active versus when you're in that really, um, energ- energized state, we could say maybe the practice is one that's a little more slow or grounding 
it made me think about when you were talking about the calm, steady voice. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're thinking about this really, um, in the right way. Like what you're thinking about, what I'm hearing is you're thinking about balance, like Mm -hmm. at one end of the spectrum, you know, how do we shift energy? So it's more towards the middle somewhere. Um, I mean, that's what I, yeah, it's, uh, it just made me think about that a little bit with, um, what Ayurveda says about if you're kind of one thing bring it, it's exactly what you just said is bringing us more toward that balance or that homeostasis place. Ancient wisdom again, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that, that actually kind of was, um, the question we sort of just covered where we were going next, but do you have other thoughts on how we might apply our broad understandings of polyvagal theory to yoga practices? Um, well, I, I think about how, um, well, you were talking about um, expanding that window of tolerance earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think of it as, I use the word capacity a lot, like what we're, what we're able to, um, what we're able to manage, what we're able to do. Um, so it's, I think um, it's about expanding capacity, like yoga can really help with that. All forms of yoga, especially asana, because it's a mini, um, it's a mini opportunity. There are many, many, many opportunities within, um, a, you know, 60 minute class, um, to be challenged and to feel what it's like, Oh, this, this is really hard. My legs are shaking or (laughs) yeah this, the plank saws you did last week. Yeah. The body saw. Yeah. I, I can really hold my body up right now. Um, but that's actually really good for us. It's that progressive overload. It's like, Ooh, I know what it feels like to be hard, you know, to, for things to be hard and I know how to get through it. And that, that creates, it's all these little opportunities throughout a class to, um, practice resilience. That's how I think of yoga, you know, when we're talking about a more active practice. Um, yeah. I think about that a lot too. It's a, there's some, there's something to, there's a value in doing things that are hard, not just, not just because they're hard, but there's a value in there's something we learn about ourselves when we can face challenge and know that we can do it. Yeah. And it's become a big part of my, my clinical practice too. I know we were going to talk about it later, but since we're talking about it, yeah, it's, it's become a bigger and bigger part of my clinical practice to think about how do I help my client? How do I help this person who is struggling, um, manage all of this? Cause sometimes it's just like, really is they come to me because things are hard, stressful, overwhelming. Um, I can't get rid of the stuff. They can't get rid of it. It exists. Mm -hmm. And maybe over time, um, things can fall off their, their so-called plate. Yeah. Or they can move it away. But uh, most of the times this is what we have right now. Um, we can't get rid of the stuff. 
so what do we do? And then it goes back to what, what Judith Lasseter was saying, abiding in ease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one, one way to do that is to expand our emotional capacity. So in yoga, we're, you know, it's very clear we're expanding our physical capacity, like yeah. the body saws, oh, I'm getting stronger. <laughs> But you can do that emotionally. And I think yoga supports that too. Like these asana practices supports our our sense of expanding our capacity. So I don't know if I even answered your question. There. I think I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I I really love everything that you just said. Yeah. There was a follow-up question that I had kind of percolating, but I'm going to hang on to it for a minute. Um, I wanted to, so I know that you're not on social media. And I, as I said a little bit earlier in our conversation, I spend more time than I usually like to talk about on social media. <laughs> and um, What I notice, what I've noticed is that if you go kind of looking around for polyvagal theory, there's a lot of things, what I'll maybe make an asterisk about here is there's a lot of stuff that's adjacent to yoga in the realm of holistic health and all sorts of other things that, that pop up when, when the social media algorithms identify that you're into yoga. (laughs) So it's not a very, um, you know, I don't have to go looking very hard to start finding information about polyvagal theory. And a lot of it trickles into my feeds in some way or another. And what I see online about polyvagal theory is right. The, one of the worst things about social media, in my opinion, is the way that everything has, um, such an oversimplification. So everything that I understand about polyvagal theory, I often see distilled down to like a five image carousel where someone's like, if you can do this thing to stimulate your vagus nerve, then, you know, you'll, there will be world peace. (laughs) It's, um, it gets posited as a cure-all for a lot of things. And there's just a lot of bad information about you know, stimulating the vagus nerve and why you should, and even how you should, and what, what the value or utility is about that, um, that I think it's unfortunate because it does everyone a disservice, including, including polyvagal theory itself. Um, but I want to, I want to ask for you to help us draw a distinction about the polyvagal theory framework. We've talked a lot about how how we understand it in yoga or how it might be useful in yoga. But I I'd love to hear from you about how polyvagal theory is applied in a clinical mental health setting. And you have talked about it a little bit, but I want to make a, like a clear distinction about these two things because there's utility and understanding, you know, for yoga teachers and practitioners. And it's, it's different than your work. Yeah. Um, well, we talked about this a little bit earlier mm-hmm. before we started recording about, um, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Give That's me okay. <laughs> um, yes, in a clinical mental health setting, um, when we are treating a client or patient, um, and there's a lot of complexity, which generally there is. Mm-hmm. Um, when there's a lot of complexity, we we don't use one mode of treatment. We don't use one single intervention. Um, we're using 
multiple interventions. We may have a team of different providers um, who are all working together and collaborating um, to support this person. So it's multimodal treatment. Um, and I guess with, with yoga, what happens is, um, you know, it's, it's like what you're saying about social media, do these five things and you will solve world peace. You will bring yeah. back peace. Um, no, we, we use lots of different things. We have lots of tools. And um, the other thing about polyvagal theory or any other theory is the word theory which um, in my world, you know, we have all kinds of theories. There is attachment theory. There are theories where there's a lot of science and research behind it and others like, like CBT, cognitive behavioral, behavioral theory or therapy. Now we don't mm -hmm. even, we don't really use theory with mm -hmm. that, but it's like, it's the most researched um, yeah type of therapy. So there's a lot of information around it. But anyway, getting back to the word theory, um, the way we use theory in, in a clinical setting is it, it's a framework. It's a structure to hang your, your um, hypotheses or your thoughts or your thinking about a case, um, about a situation. It's like, it creates a framework and we might take different theories and put it together to create like concepts, a way to think about even to even think about what's going on. I don't know if this makes sense. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the other thing about it. It's a structure. It's a framework. It's not like, here's the answer. Right. I think that's a really important call out is that it's not and I'm not in the clinical mental health world. That isn't my lens, but I think in, it's all of us have the tendency to want to, we want the answer. <laughs> we want to get to the end point. And so when we hear about these things, they, whether it's um, polyvagal theory or an, any other number of practices, theories, frameworks, you know, we want to hold this up as like the thing, the answer, the way. <laughs> And it's not what I'm hearing from you is that it's really not like that. And we have a number of ways that we can look at any one situation or, or things that are going on with a person and, and utilize many tools. Yeah. So polyvagal theory in a clinical mental health setting would be just one of those ways to look at something. Yeah. And I, I think this is an important place to say that there's a lot of conversation in in my world as a yoga teacher, um, a lot of conversation about the way that there's contention, I guess is maybe what I want to say. There's a, what I experience is that there's a little bit of tension between um, honoring like the traditions of yoga and how things have been done for a long time. And then also what our understandings are with science and modern science and how some things may or may not be true that uh, uh, an example that comes to mind often that it's I'll say has been thoroughly maybe put to rest by the scientific community is like if you do twists it will ring out your organs or detoxify your liver and it's like well no <laughs> not really not 
is, is there a case and like detoxification as a whole, this is maybe a bad example because that's a whole other can of worms or like rabbit hole that we could go down about the need to, to detoxify the body. But if you wanted to make a case that you were detoxifying any, anything that is like a rigorous activity might result in a sweating or moving things like out of the body, but twists don't necessarily have more inherent value than any other type of yoga pose you might do. Um, another thing that comes to mind is when I think of the, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, that text, there's like the specific call out about if you do headstand practices or inverted practices after six months, <clears throat> I think it's after three months or after six months, you're like, you'll have no gray hair. <laughs> you're like on the path to immortality. Um, and it's like, we know that we know that those things are empirically untrue. <laughs> That's just not real. Um, and, but it's not that we don't need to like throw all of those things out. Like they have their own value, but we don't have to get hung up on like holding things so specifically. It reminded me a little bit of that when you were, when you were talking. Um, and now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> But the way that these frameworks can be valuable. Um, one thing I did want to come back around to though, since since it came up when you were talking is, and now I have caught my train of thought again, is that our understandings of things um, with science evolve over time. Like things are are rarely settled and, and done. And so we have to make space for things to evolve over time and for our understandings to change and to deepen and to know that, that that's likely to happen. Um, when you were talking you mentioned CBT or cognitive behavioral theory or therapy. And in my understanding, which again is limited because this is not my area of expertise, is that for, I don't know, ever, <laughs> for a long time, CBT was has been considered the gold standard of treatment. And that in the last period of years, I don't know specifically, but that there has been sort of this evolution and understanding that the best and I'm going to make air quotes again. <laughs> this is like some of the most effective, maybe best is not the word I'm looking for, but some of the most effective forms of treatment tend to include a somatic component along with CBT. And somatic is for anyone listening who doesn't know that word is like a body-based modality. Is that, can you speak yes. to that a little bit? Yes. So in somatic work, um, which I guess it's more on the front edge of my profession, um, we're looking at both at, at the whole body, um, at the idea that we, we experience emotions and feelings and all of that, um, not just up here, I'm touching my head, Yep. Um, but throughout our whole physiological system. And we can work with our body in different ways to um, support emotional resilience or to support healing from trauma. So yeah, that's, that would be what it would mean to work more somatically mm -hmm. in very general terms. Is it, would you say that it's accurate to say that there has been sort of a move toward integrating more somatic practices along with cognitive behavioral um, practices? I am, I am seeing that, you know, here locally within my 
my the colleagues that I know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not on social media. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing in, I don't know, Belgium or France or. Yeah. You know, I, mean. I, I remember reading about this when I was doing um, a lot of research for some of the, some of the stuff I teach in our 200 hour yoga teacher training about the nervous system. And I also remember reading about this when I was taking trauma-informed uh, yoga training. Right. So it's, some, it's something that popped up a couple of times in my research that I has kind of stuck stuck with me over time. Yeah, and I've been doing more training in that area, and um, I'm just struck by um, it's it's powerful. It's powerful to be able to, to address things through your body instead of just um, talking about it. It's just a different way of processing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I find it, I, I think it's a very, very powerful way to work. It makes me think a little bit when you said it's just a different way of processing it um, bubbled up for me the way that it's, it's really clearly understood that we have people who learn best visually, that people who process best auditorially or kinesthetically, we understand well that there are people who learn best in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. It's just intuitive sense that there might be different types of practices that meet people in different places whether it's just the way they process or, or any other kind of thing that's contributing to, to what is most supportive for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I see, you know, I, I have clients come in who like somatic work is weird to them. It feels goo goo. Um, and others, they just like naturally settle into it and it's something that feels comfortable for them. So it's different for everyone. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, so when you think of polyvagal theory, so we have this, this framework of ventral and dorsal vagal. And I remember you loaned me a book several years ago when I first was interested in polyvagal theory called the polyvagal theory in therapy that I found is really interesting. Um, within that framework, oh, you have it by Deb Dana. Yeah. Um, and everyone, if you're interested in learning more about this, this is a great book and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I, it was one I really enjoyed reading. Um, but I remember that there was some kind of specific practices mentioned, like if I'm remembering correctly, she talked about breathing in the book or about humming. There was kind of a low sound component are those things that you put into clinical practice with people, those types of. Yes, I do. Things? Yes, I do. And, um, I've been doing some training with a somatic therapist who is really about, um, moving, shifting emotions throughout the, the body, the physiological container, um, because the the thought process there is when it's when we experience an emotion and it's it's located primarily in one place in our body it's going to be more acute or more intense so when we can shift it around um then it's 
it becomes diffused because it's 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 not just in that one place. It's in multiple places. Um, and one way of doing that is through um, vocalization. So um, Deb Dana, I I I know she has some of some of the what you were mm -hmm. talking about the humming. Um, what I also do is um, just you know we naturally make these sounds when things become like too much or overwhelming. Like mm -hmm. ugh. <laughs> I'm very familiar with that one. <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar with that one too. But when we even do that, we just sit and we go, Ugh, like we're feeling a lot. It it's it's too much. It's so it seems kind of silly is just to go, Ugh. And yeah. Do, Ugh. It's actually like shifting things around and in, in with within us emotionally in our bodies. So that's another, that's another, um, I guess, intervention that's more body-based that I tend to use. Yeah. Um, I'm realizing that we didn't really, at the beginning of this conversation, when I, I mentioned the vagus nerve, <laughs> it's an important part of this conversation that it's one of the main 12 cranial nerves, but, um, that I, I would be interested in hearing a little bit more maybe from you about what what exactly does polyvagal, like those two words mean? <laughs> what, um, what is the, when we think about moving between dorsal and ventral vagal and things like vocalizations or other ways that we might work with the vagus nerve, the idea is in stimulating the vagus nerve is that it changes something like the body to brain conversation. Is that is that kind of what the polyvagal theory tells us? Um, yeah. So I, did you mention how, um, the vagus nerve is the longest? I didn't. Wanders yeah. our brain stem emerging down the back of our head through, it goes all the way down. It wanders through different organs, like, um, the lungs and heart and it goes through our, it connects back to the, the throat larynx. Um, and it, it ends at around the colon it's in, it's in that area, but it goes through the diaphragm. So there are theoretically lots of ways. I mean, I've, I've, I list, okay. I listened to a yoga podcast where they talked about polyvagal theory and mm -hmm. They were talking about how to access the 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 vagus nerve. Okay. Yeah, like through different kinds of movements and um, pressure on different areas. But it's so deep within our system that that part is. I don't see. I, I don't understand how that can happen. It's like there's no direct access to it. Um, Yep. This is a, this is a really important call out. Yeah. Coming back to what we were talking about with like this, what I'll just, what I'll just call misinformation. <laughs> it's like thrown around about the vagus nerve. It's like, there's no direct access everyone <laughs> to your vagus nerve as, yeah. as a takeaway. Yeah. The only kind of direct access that I've heard of or more direct is, um, when they've implanted, um, 
I, I'm not sure exactly what the device is called, but the, it's a stimulator. Yeah. Of nerve. I, you've probably heard of this, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's, they've done this to treat certain conditions. They put it in the left side of the chest mm-hmm. and I think it's been used for like epilepsy and um, certain other conditions. I know um, they're looking at it for gastroparesis as well. Um, Is this the same as the, um, when I'm thinking of where you were pointing with, which is like right uh, kind of by your collarbone, right? Uh, um, With like electrodes. Is this the same type of treatment that I've heard of for things like persistent depression? Um, I'm not quite sure okay. um, what I, I know for, um, um, resistant treatment depression is more like, um, ketamine, esketamine and TMS, um, which mm-hmm. TMS is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. They, that actually, they put it on your head and okay. then told it feels like a woodpecker pecking on your head. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a different kind of stimulation than, than the vagus stimulation that I was talking about for, um, different types of health issues. Got it. New area. Yeah. I get understandings evolve and change, right? (laughs) Yeah. And information, um, it just keeps coming. Yeah. I was reading a little bit about vagus nerve stimulators, um, and I have something here from the polyvagalinstitute.org. Um, they have something on their, their page of what is polyvagal theory, um, about vagus nerve stimulator devices and how they work. And they say, this is a direct quote from their website that humans have used a variety of methods to activate the vagus nerve. Some of which go back thousands of years, such as music, dance, yoga, and breathing techniques. In the 20th century, scientists and clinicians began developing devices now turned termed vagal nerve stimulators to artificially activate the vagus. Vagal nerve stimulators work by delivering electrical impulses to the vagus nerve from areas near the chest, ear, head, and neck. Um, I thought that was interesting though, this, this first sentence, um, where they talk about music, dance, yoga, and breathing. Um, because one, one thing that I've definitely heard, and we talked about it a little bit with vocalizations is things like chanting and singing are really regulating to the nervous system. Yeah. I, I get that because, you know, when I've chanted with you and it feels so good, it just, you can feel its effect on your nervous system. And for me also, the other piece is, I don't, I don't think this usually occurs like where you're chanting on your own. It's less in our modern world. I think it's like, we go to a setting where Mm -hmm. we're with other people. And I think there's something about being in a room with people, a group of people, and you can hear and feel those vibrations moving around you. I, I think that's, that's a, a, I don't know what to call it. It, it's, it, it, it pops up for me about the, the co-regulation piece. Yeah. I wonder if there's anything specific in your training on polyvagal theory that speaks to you. You kind of talked about it at the beginning about co-regulation. 
Yeah, that's a huge word in polyvagal theory. It's we're we're wanting to be um, co-regulated and to co-regulate others um, through our ventral vagal system. Like that's what's happening through ventral vagal. Um, for me, co-regulation is not the end all and be all by any means. It's it's a part. It's a part of the bigger picture. Um, because we were talking about expanding emotional capacity earlier. Mm -hmm. I think those two things go hand in hand. Like it's okay if you're, it's great if you're, you're being co-regulated. Um, but what I guess I think about is like, you know, I think it's important as a human to feel all the whole range of emotions. We can't be we can't live a human life without that. Um, so this emphasis on, hey, we're going to keep coming back. We're going to try to keep coming back to a regulated, calm state. I think sometimes we need to be angry because it's appropriate. We yeah. are sad because that's appropriate. That's an appropriate response to a situation. So um, co-regulation is great. And... We don't want to co-regulate our emotions away. We want yes. to make space for, for being able to tolerate more and more um, emotionally and to help regulate each other for the times when it's hard and we need support. So yeah. that's a big word in polyvagal theory. And that's also one of, I guess, my... Um, I don't know if criticism is the right word, but mm -hmm. that's one of my little sticking points um, is this co-regulation. No, let's, let's have co-regulation and feel our emotions um, and expand our capacity for that. Yeah, I, I do think that's really important is that there is, you're right, there's a lot of emphasis on how we can always be regulated. Mm -hmm. We're always returning back to a good baseline. Um, and it's another, another place where things are often just oversimplified and that we're not meant to be perfectly regulated all of the time. Yeah. Yeah. We're not, we're not, um, automatons, <laughs> right? We're highly flawed. We have emotional responses and that's, that's, uh, normal range to have an emotional response to something. Yeah. And I mean, I think for me, it might not be the exact right use of the word, but that does feel a little bit like co-regulation is to be able to show up in my mess, <laughs> all of my things and still be met there by, by people and by community. That's, it's a really important, another thing that always is, uh, alive for me when I, I'm really interested in lots of health things or wellness and people and that it stands out for me that one of our number one indicators of early death, the number one indicator of early death is loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. We're... So it's that, that piece of being able to show up and, and be met. Yeah. Through our ventral, ventral vagal parts of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So the last question that I had for us today, um, it came across my radar sometime last year and I was, 
I was trying to think of the right framework. I had a little bit of a distressing reaction to it. <laughs> it came across my, um, my radar last year. The, the specific wording was polyvagal theory has been debunked. And I was like, it has, <laughs> I was kind of upset by that. Um, and, and like I said, our understandings of things change over time, but I, I actually haven't found all that much about the contention. I'll call it contention around polyvagal theory, but I was curious for you as a clinical practitioner, are you aware of any contention or like I'm making quotes, quote unquote, debunking of polyvagal theory? And can you speak to that a little bit from your, from the side of your work? Yeah, I'm, I'm like laughing inside a little bit because I remember that time when, yeah. <laughs> when you had, yeah. when you across that. I came right to you. Yeah. <laughs> so this yeah. True? Well, what I did, I, you know, I didn't immediately start Googling. I um, went to my um, somatic consultation group. I meet with them regularly and they're, they're all somatic therapists. Um, and some of them have been doing this work for a very long time. And they were like, what? <laughs> they were like, what do you mean? It's not true. They, they, were, they just couldn't understand that. They were very confused. And then we didn't quite have a, very much of a conversation because it just didn't make sense to them. They were just, yeah. what? <laughs> um, but then, so then I went and looked, did a little bit of reading and, um, you know, it's, there are some things around polyvagal um, theory that, um, you know, you hear like the science doesn't match up. Mm -hmm. That's, that's one of the things people are talking about, like um, the, the triune brain model, um, that's what it's based on. Um, the, that there's a, it's the reptilian brain, limbic mm -hmm. and cor the cortex. But really, um, as you were talking about earlier, where um, our knowledge and information, it just keeps changing and we're learning more and more. Um, what we are learning more and more about the brain is that it's more of an adaptive model. It's all interconnected. Cognition is not separate from emotion. Um, everything in the brain is connected. It's not three separate areas like in the triune brain model. Um, so that was one Did thing. Can I ask you a question there? Did Dr. Porges propose this model of the brain or was he applying his theory of the polyvagal theory to a pre-existing brain model. Do you know? I think it's a pre-existing brain model. And one thing we didn't talk about about polyvagal theory is um, the way he developed it. He was thinking about like, how did each part of the brain develop evolution on an from an evolutionary point of view? How did it develop? Which, which part would be like the newer part of, of the autonomic nervous system and mm -hmm. the brain and how, how that um, connects to the autonomic nervous system. So in polyvagal theory, the ventral vagal is the, the newest part in his 
in his framework is the newest part of our our evolution and the dorsal the dorsal vagal is the oldest part so it's what we what we as um the oldest form of our being that was that was the the main way we had to cope with um threat was through the dorsal would it be accurate to make a comparison here about um i'm familiar with models that are that say things like the amygdala is like a more primitive part of the brain relative to say our prefrontal cortex which is maybe more responsible for like again making air quotes like higher thought or higher functioning and that many people are familiar with the idea of an amygdala hijack which is like you panic and react um amygdala hijack is is referenced often and when people are in like really high stress situations like this this primitive again, quotes, like primitive part of the brain takes over and reacts to, to move away from threat. It would it be accurate to make a comparison to what you're talking about there. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, um, a more triune brain kind of perspective. I see. Um, yeah. Okay. And what we're learning more and more is that it's all actually connected and integrated, um, and, and more adaptive, so one of the one of the criticisms then of polyvagal theory is that it's based on a a less complete understanding of the way that parts of the brain and the nervous system work together. Is that right? Yeah. And then um, there was more the what I was coming across. Um, huh. Well, there there was. Um, this is getting more specific. There is an animal study from 2021 um, showing that heart rate variability and vagal tone aren't necessarily correlated. Um, so that was in that was um, a study done on mice, and many people would disagree with that because it wasn't it wasn't done on humans, but mice are mammals. So what are those two? What do those two terms mean? Heart rate variability and vagal tone. Yeah, we didn't talk about that at all. Um, I know. <laughs> we're like going backwards. Um, well, one of the ways to measure how well your um, vagus nerve is working, which would be vagal tone. So how well, so how well your your vagus nerve is working is is measured through vagal tone. Um, and we can't we can't get to the vagus nerve because it's so deep in our bodies we can't get to this nerve and actually like measure it in any way Mm -hmm. the only way to do that is um dr purges um posited that it was through heart rate variability so heart rate variability um we have a person each person has uh, their their heart beats a certain number of times per minute and this is always changing Mm -hmm. so if it's like i don't know 60 beats per minute um it's not going to be one beat per second right they're going to be there's going to be variation in the gaps um between the beats and the higher the variability it's he suggests that that means 
um, the higher your vagal tone is, which then means there's more resilience. There's more of that ability to return to um, a more um, regulated calm state. It's, it's easier for that person with the higher vagal tone. So that study was showing that there wasn't a correlation. Um, okay. Yeah, and I'd have to look to to um, pull up the, that exact study for you. Yeah, even outside of polyvagal theory though, heart rate variability is, um, it, it's a health measure that is used to indicate well-being for all kinds of things. Um, so there's maybe not necessarily in the framework of polyvagal theory, but heart rate variability is, um, yeah, it's like you can measure it on your Apple watch. <laughs> And yeah. it's, it's said to, to speak to all kinds of things, um, related yeah. to your health and, and prediction of future health problems, um, and, and a measure of fight and flight and relaxation response. So even outside the framework of polyvagal theory, heart rate variability is, is important. Yes, it is. It's just like, does it specifically tell Align. us vagal tone is? Tells us a lot, but does, I don't know. Does it tell us specifically how their vagal tone is functioning? Got it. So those are two things that came across. Um, well, one thing that you and I talked about when we, when I initially came to you with this idea that polyvagal theory is, is potentially now controversial, you gave me an interesting, an interesting insight into the way that you use polyvagal theory in clinical work. So maybe coming back around to what you were talking about earlier in terms of multimodal treatment, um, how even, even with this contention of like, potentially some of these things don't perfectly line up and there's an evolving understanding um, how is it still useful to you in your clinical work then? Yeah, it's still useful to me because it provides, um, a lens, uh, or a framework, whatever term you want to use, um, to, to, um, wrap my head around what's going on with a human, like what is going mm -hmm. on here? Um, it gives me a little patch of ground to stand on while I'm trying to figure out um, what is happening. And one of the main ways that it's, um, that I use it is when we were talking at the early, earlier part mm -hmm. about um, asana um, and the differences between, um, you know, like, power yoga versus restorative, you know, they're doing, they're, they're helping us to build resilience, but in different ways. Um, so I tend to use it. Like I'm thinking about, here's an example, like someone who is really, really depressed mm -hmm. and has lost all motivation, not interested in anything that they used to be interested in is sleeping a lot that would be a really low energy kind of state to be, be stuck in. And so I think of it as like, okay, 
I want to bring their energy, help them bring their energy level up. Um, so let's, let's have them walk every day. <laughs> like walk for five minutes. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Like move around your house, do some sweeping or vacuuming. So I'm thinking about like, um, this there in, in polyvagal theory, um, in the clinical setting, a lot of times, um, this, this metaphor of the ladder is used. Mm -hmm. So dorsal vagal would be the lowest, you know, lowest energy. And then, um, we want to move people up the ladder. So I, I think of it like that. Like if somebody is, is in this very depressed state, we've got to bring more energy in, um, so I don't, I don't know what you think of that. Does polyvagal theory have a, a term that speaks to more of like the other side of that stress response, like the fight response or the, uh, most of, most of what we're talking about is sounds more to me like the, well, you already said it earlier, like the freeze response. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of polyvagal theory is, um, there's a lot of, um, I don't know if focus is the right word, but there's a lot around that um, because um, I think now, I think it's become used a lot for um, trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of focus more on that end of it. Got it. Um, in that more like kind of stuck dissociative place. Yeah. Yeah. So, but if I'm just thinking about it clinically, like more activated state might look like, um, anxiety level of anxiety where, um, you're having panic attacks, Mm -hmm. intrusive thoughts, and you can't get to sleep. Um, it's to me, anxiety that, that, that kind of anxiety is about like high energy level. And anxiety is about, um, everything moving quickly. It's, mm-hmm. it's like your thoughts are moving quickly. Your, your, your body is in the state of like, you can't rest. So then we might work on ways, interventions to bring them back more to the middle. Like, how do we put a pause in there? How mm-hmm. do we slow this down? Like breathing, right? Yeah. Might be a way to work with the other end of the spectrum with that in mind that, oh, they're at, they're near the top of the ladder. We want to bring them down towards the middle of the ladder. Mm -hmm. So a main, a main thing that stands out for me in what you're saying about possibly some of the things that Dr. Porges proposed about the polyvagal theory may not be totally accurate, but there's still a useful application in clinical framework about understanding or having language to work with someone or um, a, a framework that you're working within as a clinician that's useful to apply. And it, it sounds a little bit to me like what we talked about earlier with asana where, or this, this little bit of contention maybe in the yoga world, whereas our understandings are evolving, like it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to throw out the whole thing and be like, well, that's been debunked. So on to the next, let's find the next thing. There's still a value and a, and a utility. And like, even though t- 
even though twists might not detoxify our liver better than any other yoga pose, um, that it's still useful to practice asana and twists for a number of other, for any number of other reasons. And the same might be said of polyvagal theory is that there might not be this perfect alignment of exactly what Dr. Porges proposed in the nineties, but that it's still, and at least in your clinical framework, useful for all of these other reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. yeah. And it's not the flip side of that is it's not the one and only thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As with, as again, with any number of other things is that there is not one, one way, one thing that's going to be the cure all for everything. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, there are going to be a lot of, I mean, yoga, so many tools, so many approaches and types of yoga um, practices. And then there's yoga philosophy and pranayama. I mean, that's a yoga itself is an example of like probably one of the best examples of multimodal ways to go about things. And, and the, it's was standing out for me too, when you were talking is that yoga can do so much for us and it's not a substitute for going to therapy or like um, taking care of any other number of things in our lives, right? Is it's not just go to yoga and like all your problems are solved. Uh <laughs> I wish because I really enjoy <laughs> <like> yoga. <laughs> Me too. Me too. But it's I'm that we need more than more than one way to understand things or more than one way to work on things, maybe is is kind of what I'm coming around to. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think of like in my work, I have a theoretical orientation. So my theoretical orientation is the patch of ground that I stand on. And and then there's all this other stuff. And if I want to move off that patch ground, that's fine. I can do that. But if, if I need that, like to go to that safe spot, you know, safe in quotes where yeah. I, well, and I, you know, I, I understand how to work from there. I just go back to that patch. So mm-hmm. maybe yoga can be a person's, you know, patch of ground they stand on, and then they can also go to therapy or they can go get cranial sacral work. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Lots of things that are supportive. Yeah. And it, and at times we need some, some things more than others too. So there's space for all of it. Yeah. 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 So you got polyvagal theory from a therapist perspective, and I hope that helps. Are there any other main, if you had a main takeaway that you wanted people to hear about polyvagal theory from this conversation, what might it be? Hmm. Well, the main thing is that it's, it's, uh, all about resilience and getting back to a middle ground, not being on the extremes. It's, it's, uh, it's about getting to a place of resilience. And I think that's a really important piece. Yeah, I think so too. 
I think for me, um, a major takeaway from this conversation might be that there's just nothing is the cure-all <laughs> for all of the things. And as I said in a, a conversation recently on this podcast um, related to menopause is that it's, it's important for us to, um, as things come across our social media feeds or into our awareness, that it's important to vet our information and to hear from people who are qualified to talk about those things rather than your favorite influencer. Yes, very, very important. And also to practice reflection. Like, does this does this resonate with me? And if it does, what about it? Let me get more information. Um, yeah. Let me, let me look into this more. Yep. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, they can go to my website. So it's just dorcasnung.com. I have another website that is being set up. It's, it's called birth of a parent, birth of And, um, that will be up in the next, in 2024, the beginning of 2024. And it's about supporting, um, parents, well, people who are having babies into the transition of parenthood because there's no manual for it. There's no manual for it. And it's, it's such an important time to have support in, um, I, I talked with somebody last week who's recently become a parent and how much loss of identity there is that isn't anticipated because your whole understanding of who you are and what, what gets prioritized has to shift when you have a baby. Yeah. Um, and there's so much that we just don't talk about. Um, so it's, it's such an important thing to have support through. Yes. And it's one of my favorite areas to work in. So, yeah, I will put a link to your website to do it. So you all can find Dorcas's website and some more about birth of a parent in the show notes when the podcast is published. Thanks so much for your time, Dorcas and talking to us. I hope that you can come back and talk to us more about other things in the future. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. It's a privilege to be able to have this time with you. Likewise. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I would love to continue this conversation with you on social media or elsewhere. You can find me on Instagram at Kelly V Yoga or online at kellyvyoga.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Be well. See you next time.